Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. The idea behind these podcasts is to find a better way of us being able to create performance. So we're interested in understanding ourselves, our teams and culture and supporting other people along the way. And we're also interested in the science behind high performance as well as the art of how we actually go about delivering it. And then asking, of course, the questions about why do we do what we do? We're keen to explore all the key areas, what are the determining factors of high performance? Get to know some of the people along the way who've been responsible for driving high performance. And we'll be trying to learn the lessons. How can we all develop so that where we're looking back over our lives, that we can be content with what we've achieved but also be proud about the way that we've done it. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes and supportingchampions.co.uk to get these insights straight to your inbox. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Supporting Champions podcast. In this episode, I talk to Jenny Rogers. Now, Jenny Rogers is a personal and executive coach, and so that's not to be confused with someone with a stopwatch setting gym sessions. But Jenny is a coach who empowers others. So in Jenny's coaching skills book, which is widely viewed as the Bible of coaching, she defines coaching as a, as a partnership of equals whose aim is to achieve speedy, increased and sustainable effectiveness through focused learning in every aspect of the client's life. Coaching raises self-awareness and identifies choices. Working to the client's agenda, the coach and the client have the sole aim of closing the gaps between potential and performance. I love that last sentence about closing the gap between potential and performance. So I talked to Jenny about her early career, how she got into coaching, how or how coaching found her, and discussed the ins and outs of working with people to achieve their potential. In the meantime, if you've got any thoughts and comments, then please do share those with us in the comments box. So Jenny, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, Jenny Rogers, widely respected coach, um, prolific author, which I'd love to get into that expertise and and what you've learned over the years. Um, I'm keen to ask you a bit about where it all started for you. Um, I noticed on your biogs that you were a teacher at an FE college, for example. Yeah, I was. What did you teach? Um, I taught in Oxford and in Bristol, and I lasted five years as a teacher. <laughs> and that I really, I suppose, was the beginning of my development itch, which I probably always had. Even as a teenager, probably I was doing a very clumsy form of coaching with my friends. Right. Why are you worried about your spots? Um What's the problem with your maths homework? This is how you should do it. Right. (laughs) Um, And so really, I think one way or another, I've always been in that kind of development role. It's always fascinated me, the gap between what people can do and what we actually do and how you close it, which is really what coaching is about. Oh, I see. So so the FE College, you you, you mentioned in your biogs about teaching people that didn't really want to be there. So Mm. there was a... Was a motivation issue that you'd already spotted. Yeah, without with with motivation, human beings can do almost anything. Without it, it's very mm. hard. So I think for me as a coach, one of the reasons to say no to a client is if the client doesn't really want to be there, mm. and somebody else has thought it's a very good idea for the client to have coaching, but the client themselves thinks everything is fine. They're just going along with it, right. and you get nowhere with that kind of relationship. We lasted a lot more longer than I did. I taught at A levels at my old former, my former FE college, for three months. Um, and I had that same sense of such a mix of people that, that do want to be there or don't want to be there, and you had to, you had to be responsible for everyone almost. Well, the, the good thing about further education, as it was then, was that we also ran evening classes. So for people who had missed out on O-levels or GCSEs, as they now are, it was an opportunity to have a second chance. So that was a good introduction to the fact a lot of people had and still do miss out on the things that could make a difference to them, including getting formal educational qualifications. Mm. So those people really did want to be there. Mm. Teaching them was a delight. Absolutely. What did you teach? 
Um, well, anything that other people didn't want to teach, basically. <laughs> um, but um, I was hired to teach English right. and history, but English mostly, I, it, it was English. And I was already writing freelance articles and embarking on my what I think of as my shadow career as a writer. So you you taught was that the first, was that your first job or where did yes that was yes okay. yes, yes so rewind a little bit for us where did, where are you from where did it all start for you um, I'm from South Wales from from Cardiff and I escaped from Cardiff at eighteen and uh, <laughs> to, went to university in, in Bristol and um, yeah. I that was my first job was 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 as a, as a teacher after teaching i had my first job with the bbc where i was what bbc then pompously called an education officer which was advising on adult education right and then found that that was a job that it had too much freedom and not enough um, recognition really oh and um, um, explain that for me well the, the job was said to matter, but the feeling, my feeling, and feeling of my, many of my colleagues was that it didn't really. So we were given an enormous amount of freedom because nobody was really that interested in, in what we were doing. I see. And I thought, really, the, the purpose of the BBC is making television programmes, or making programmes. Mm. It doesn't have any purpose other than that. So that's where I want to be. And the BBC had, and still has, a very strong commitment to development, to staff development. And they have this scheme called an attachment scheme where you can compete to work for six months with no editorial background in an editorial department and mm-hmm. role. And then if you like them and they like you, you can then compete for a permanent job. Mm. And so that's what I did. And so were they the sort of old traditional open university type programs? In terms no, of they were. They, that was made by by a different department. They they were called. Well, there was schools education, which I didn't. I wasn't involved with, and it was called adult education or continuing education. Hmm. And they were programs that were never labelled education. And although those departments have gone long since, the tradition of making that kind of program goes on. So. Um, one of my first programmes was I, I was Delia Smith's pri- first prime-time producer. That's, and, that's um, an incredible... It was never labelled education, but the purpose of it was to teach people how to cook. Right. Whereas now it's potentially entertainment. The, the... Well, it's, it's, it should be both, really. There shouldn't right. be any, any distinction between the two. And when I think of current programmes like Michael Mosley's very good programmes, mm. I think, Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and uh, How to Be Healthy, I forgot what the other it's yeah. called. Um, those are very much the kind of programmes I and my department pioneered. We, we pioneered what so-called lifestyle programmes under the guise of education. And really, his, his programmes are entirely educative. Mm. They're all about how to be fitter, healthier, and about evidence about what will improve your life and what won't. We were making those programmes. Right. And um, I and, and colleagues did a, did a lot of health-based eating, eating healthily, mm. lifestyle programmes, um, cookery, DIY, gardening, things that have taken off ever since. Mm. At the time, we were... Some of my colleagues in the department who didn't make that kind of program would say to me, "Well, not quite in these words, but almost, well, you seem like an intelligent person, Jenny. You know, why aren't you going to make a proper program rather than these things about imagine sneer in the voice, cookery, cookery, and the thought that there would be whole channels devoted to cookery programs would have really astonished them. Would it yeah. astonish me? Mm. It would have astonished me too." Mm. But those programmes began getting very big audiences. So we proved there was... We got three million viewers on BBC Two against EastEnders, for instance, with the first Delia programme. Wow. Which is amazing. Yeah. So in, in, as, a, as an editor or as, as commissioning, that commissioning space, you're, you're differentiating what people want as well as what they... Sort of almost the perceived need in some ways. Well, I suppose to be a to be a, a producer or a writer or a commissioning editor, which are all things I've been, 
you have to have that streak of arrogance that to believe that what interests you will interest other people right. and trust your judgment even if it proves wrong you've got to have the guts to to follow your instinct mm. and think actually i never learned to cook mm. i now have to cook i don't really don't know what i'm doing wouldn't it be a good idea if there was a structured thing on television which helped me yeah. And so while making those programs, I learned how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see your motivations for, for putting that, that sort of yeah. thing on. And that's a great idea of designing a program that would help you. Yeah. <laughs> so so there, was a, there was this before audience surveys and all these sorts oh, of... Oh, there were, there were loads of audience surveys. Oh, really? we, we always knew the next day how many viewers we, we, we had and I followed those figures very keenly mm. and there was a there was a big audience survey called the People's Activities which showed what what large sections of the British population were doing at any one time may still be around for yeah. I know um, but it was yes it was before focus groups and all that kind of thing yes. yeah uh, there was no marketing of the classical kind right. done it was all instinct a lot of it still is regardless of what people would claim and so um so amongst finding uh, a role as a teacher for fe finding delia smith and and how much that's uh, influenced the world um where where did your journey start in terms of performance or development for, of others mm. how, did you have an opportunity at the BBC to be able to Well, that's really that? what I was doing because we never made a programme without producing a book with it and, and or a helpline or some kind of follow-up. So the, the remit of the department was really nobody used the D word development, but that, that was what it was about. Mm. The whole justification for the department was that it was about learning. Right. So I was, a, I suppose always in my heart an educationalist who found themselves making tv programs and commissioning and writing books mm. and dealing with a vast amount of correspondence uh, that came with it mm. so it wasn't just a flash in the pan here's no. a television program i hope you enjoyed it, it no was, no no it, it was, was always always something else so uh, another example would be we had a <clears throat> then protected spot on BBC One on Sunday evenings. There were just 10-minute programmes. And I produced a series called Save a Life, which was about doing CPR, emergency CPR. Mm. So you couldn't have anything more public service than, than that. Very what to so. do if somebody appeared to be having a heart attack or was choking or um, had had an accident. And... Yeah. and so, but the programmes were made in a very light-touch way. So we had quite good actors doing little little scenarios. Mm. Um, then with a, with a presenter, with, with some straight kind of, if this happens, this is what you do. Now, that was incredible to do because we began to get uh, letters and phone calls from people saying, thank you for this programme, it saved my life, or thank you for this programme, I knew what to do when my dad was having a heart attack. Oh. and he's still with us um, and to go with that we worked closely with St John and the Red Cross f from that and we produced a little very nice uh, full colour all singing all dancing uh, leaflet which I think in the end about two and a half million were distributed mm. some people could send for them and um, St John and the Red Cross distributed them and gave them to, to people. They became the standard thing on courses. So that was a very gratifying thing to do. Yes, I can imagine. And so that, that type of role then, you're, you're providing, as you say, like a public service. Mm -hmm. You're providing support to anyone who has a need mm -hmm. that they can access. But in some ways, it's somewhat on a transactional basis mm -hmm. that you're providing it and hopefully hoping people consume it in some way yeah that's right that's, you, you don't really know you don't that's that's not that's different from where you're at now so mm. i'm interested to that how you bridged your yourself to mm. that one-to-one -one yeah. human connection well, i just make one one comment on that it, the, the program in itself probably would do something but as mm. you say you know 
way of knowing. Mm. People could have the TV on and they can be out of the room or they're talking, you know, the royal family, you know, the TV was always on in the background, mm. wasn't it? Nobody was ever really yeah. watching. <laughs> um, but it, even so, if people actually went out and bought the book and made that the... Um, went to the trouble of yes. actually paying money and going to a bookshop to, to buy it, you knew that it had done something to spark their interest. Mm. And if, I don't know what the sales figures are for the cookery course, Delia's cookery course, but they hit a million quite soon after the programme. It was astonishing. Wow. And I think they've probably sold about 10 million now. I have never made a penny, by the way, from those books. It's a shame, but you know how to help dealer to buy a <laughs> um, yes. But um, that, was, that was a sign something was happening. Or if people, if she held up a, I remember a lemon zester, mm. and the next day you couldn't buy a lemon zester in the United Kingdom. Wow. No money because every shop had sold out. So, but that isn't the same as knowing that anybody has actually learned anything. Sure, okay. And so I got bored with making television programmes and I went to become a commissioning editor of something called The Open College and um, commissioned multimedia materials there. It was a government-funded programme. The funding ran out quite soon and we had to go and find pro work for ourselves to keep, just to keep going so that was my introduction to consulting and coaching and enterprise and the, all, the, all the business yeah. processes that come with finding work uh, abs- absolutely and I, I began to realise that I was very interested in the whole area of what would you now call organisation behaviour mm. And I was commissioning and writing materials along those lines. And I did that for, for three years. And then I went back to the BBC as head of management development. Right. And so that was 1990. And I ran a department that provided traditional courses. Mm. And I could see that they weren't really hitting the button for the most senior people in the, in the BBC. And soon I began to get phone calls saying, um, I think I'm too senior to go on one of your courses, but um, I seem to have a bit of a problem. Can I come and talk to you? Oh, I see. Right. And nobody used the C word coaching then, but that's what it was. And I believe we called it one-to-one work. Okay. And I've slowly, a lot of my the people who reported to me began doing, we introduced it as a service. Mm. I'd literally never met anybody who called themselves a coach in the sense that you and I would use mm. that word now. Until I went on a course to learn how to use a particular psychometric and introduce myself to somebody else who's there. What do you, oh, what's your name? What do you do? And he said, oh, I'm an executive coach. And he described what he did. And I thought, oh, okay, that's what I do. <laughs> I didn't know how to label. <laughs> yes. Um, so can I just ask you about that comment from the leaders? Mm. Was that because the courses that you that were being provided genuinely weren't what they needed mm. or, or to court their imagination? Or well, was there a sort of a self, I don't really want to go on a course with everyone else, but I've got a specific special need type yeah, it was a bit, sometimes they'd say, I've already done that course. Okay. Um, or they'd say, I've actually gone to Harvard, or I went to Yale, I did, the, or the LBS, I did the executive education, but it doesn't really seem to be quite solving the problem. And okay. I really feel I need to talk it through with someone. Right. So um, some more of your work started to grow. Yeah. With that one-to-one work, as it yeah. was called, yeah. soon to become called executive coaching for you. That's right. And it began to grow very quickly. And so I suppose I was finding out by trial and error how to do it. I mean, in a sense, because of my interest in human learning, and I'd already written some books about how adults learn, Mm. it didn't feel strange to me. Right. It felt very much home territory. So I felt I was just applying, but it just to one person things that I'd applied to groups in, mm. the, in the past. Mm. So um, then you've moved on from the BBC mm. 
to explore this more fully. Yeah, I got got to the point in the BBC where I felt the thing that was really interesting me was the coaching, and I wanted it was like a compulsion. I just had to do that full time. I couldn't stay in my job and Mm. with a clear conscience and run my department and do coaching. It had to be one or the other, and it was clear I was going to choose coaching. So I left and started my own company, which which is called Management Futures. Mm. And from the start, what what I was offering was facilitation for groups, which you probably now would call team coaching, and one-to-one coaching for always for senior people. Mm. And from the start, most of my first year, most of my clients were from the BBC, and then it it spread out from there. Right. And... um, uh, interested to so, so you've gone from a team focused down to a sort of individuals mm-hmm. then you've gone back to team and then from your your work it continued to be one-to-one based work one-to-one coaching yes it was for the, probably for the first five years it was probably 50 50 one-to-one and and team-based work mm. but then I began to do as the company grew and I had colleagues who wanted to specialise in the team aspect, I started doing probably slightly less of that and more of the one-to-one work. Mm. And then I began training other coaches. Okay. So because people started saying, oh, this looks interesting. How do I learn how to be a coach? Mm. So probably quite early on, maybe 1995, 1996, we were probably one of the first companies in the UK to provide coach training. Mm and to provide a, a qualification that, that, that went with it. Right. And I was, um, so that was the beginning, really, of the explosion in coaching. Mm. So for anyone who's tuning in that still associates coaching with standing on the side of track with a, with a stopwatch, um, what is coaching that you provide? What is it? How would you define it? Well, it's or? not... It's not doing the equivalent of running up and down and telling uh, in a pitch blowing a whistle and telling people what to do and I don't think it's often that in sport anymore either no well that's that, I think <laughs> the, the demands on a coach has changed radically mm. where it was one-to-one work now it's as much leadership mm. Mm. that's that's another yeah. topic from the yeah. day but. so yeah I, th- I, th- I think it's it's really about facilitating people's thinking so that you encourage them to solve their own problems. It doesn't mean you don't provide them with information because you do very often, mm. but you provide it in a, a coaching style which is which does not undermine them and which equips them to be resilient and resourceful and all those other good things. Okay, so so very specifically there, it's it's trying to harness their own resources so that they can solve themselves as opposed to, right. I suppose the, the, the opposite might be an executive instructor in some way or mm. a consultant type mm. McKinsey person coming in and giving them a set of solutions. Well, those companies are, are, are very good at analysis. I think they're not so good at the implementation and mm. where it falls down and what the, the where the whole strength of coaching is really is, the heart of it is... We can all say probably quite readily how we should change and what we should do to fulfil ourselves or to reach our peak performance. Mm. And then mysteriously, it doesn't happen. Right. And I think that's the heart of what keeps me interested in coaching, that that, that the, the slipperiness of the human approach to change. Oh, that's a great phrase. Well, we're, we're very, very good at fooling ourselves, aren't we? Mm. The difference between knowing, knowing and, and doing. doing. Okay. Two very, very different things. And uh, think as a as a coach, what you're doing essentially is you're working with what needs to change for a person. And the person may or may not may or may not know in detail what needs to change. They probably do know in principle what needs to change. Mm. And it could be something very transactional, like I need to learn how to write a CV, mm. or it could be something linked to that. I need to need to know who I really am in order to get the job that I really feel will meet my most 
profound needs mm. and where I can grow as a human being. And have you have you noticed the demand on people changing over over the time that you've been supporting people? Do you know, not really. Really, um, I'm I'm rather resistant to this idea that we all have this unique, terrible. Oh, the stress is so awful. My emails follow me around. It's mm. all so terrible. And my bosses. I don't really buy that. I look at the life of, life of my parents who right. had to worry about was there going to be enough food and. Yeah. Uh, during the war, their house was bombed, and my father was unemployed for two years. And they had problems, I think, that people who make these complaints about how awful work life is now never have to deal with. Mm. So I think the problems can feel just as stressful, but I don't believe life is more stressful. Right, okay, so the demands might have come in different disguises yeah, as opposed to necessarily. Yeah, are different. And when people say, I have to do this, or my boss makes me answer my emails at week- weekends, I'm intensely sceptical. Hmm. Can you give us a few examples of the power of coaching that you've been able to support people through different mm-hmm. circumstances? One example would be a client I worked with last year who was to his shock and horror, made suddenly made redundant. Mm. And he'd been working for this company probably for about 20 years. He thought the boss was his friend. The boss reached 60 and decided he would sell his company to a private equity company. And then he and the private equity company decided that my client didn't have the skills that were needed in mm. what would be the new company. So the initial phase of the coaching was really about his, the intense emotional shock he experienced and the feeling of betrayal. And slowly then the coaching had to look at, he hadn't kept his skills up to date, he hadn't grown right. with the company. The company was at fault for never having given him feedback. Mm. Um, because the boss also thought, this guy is my friend, I can't do this. The boss had been lily-livered and had backed away. Okay. Um, then the work was about, well, let's call the guy Peter. Um, who is brand Peter? What, what are his skills? What, who is he really? What does he want? Mm. Where is he in his life? What phase is he in his life? So this guy in his early 50s. How long does Peter wish to go on working? What 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 else is going on in his life that he needs to pay for? Mm. What's been neglected because mm. of the the work that he's found so absorbing? Um, yeah, then given that, given the answers to those questions, well, then how do you promote this person, this brand? Mm. Um, how do you convey who he is on a CV? How do you convey, how do you, how do you find another job which isn't through, as he thought, responding to ads, but um, mm-hmm. networking and had a very small network so that, that had to change. Um, how to get over his shyness, which is one of the things that had been a deciding factor in why he wasn't considered suitable for the new role. Um, and then how, how to get through a job interview and then if you're offered the job, how do you decide whether you want to take it or not? And then once you do decide, I would like to, do, to have that job, how do you negotiate the salary? Mm. And then once you do, you do that, how do you ease yourself back? How do you get into a new job without derailing? Mm. Which is a high risk. So you, you've, got, you've actually got a quite... A broad spectrum and deep and narrow spectrum of you're almost looking at developing redeveloping their identity mm, yeah it's quite an existential thing it's, it it's at the heart of who they are yeah and rediscovering themselves mm. as well as some very specifics abc this mm. is how you need to put a cv together or mm. Um, mm. where you're potentially providing them with guidelines mm. and support yeah to sense. some some extent um 
most people know the to stay with the CV topic. They know the basic guidelines. It shouldn't be more than two or three pages, and uh, it should have an opening paragraph. I think the danger is you just write something that looks as if it could could come straight off the internet. Yes, and often it has. And so the other day, for instance, I worked for the best part of two hours with a client constructing the opening paragraph to her CV, which was based on four hours of conversations we'd had along the same lines of who are you really. Mm. But she did the work. Mm. I was just I was just asking the questions. I was right. just making the prompts. And, um, Spotting the ambiguities, yeah. seeing how different things could be interpreted. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, she was very, she was, she'd got a first class degree in English, so she didn't need much help on finding the right word. But it was how far is this true to the person she, she wants to convey, which is a very different person from the job she's been doing. Right. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's one example. So um, I noticed in in your uh, in your blog you talked a bit about as a coach, not knowing what to do next, or you know getting feeling like you might, might be stuck, mm-hmm. and and potentially reaching for, or overreaching for a toolbox, mm-hmm. almost going through a mirror signal manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your top tips for for people who are in that situation where they're coaching for the first time? Um, I've learned some tools, but I don't know whether that's the right approach. When when you're a newly trained coach, you really need to know that there are tools and techniques, and mm. it's very helpful to have a model like Oscar or Grow or mm. any of the others. A very very useful framework of questions that you can learn that that you can ask, which mean that you can practice safely. Um, and it's very useful to know that there are these tools and techniques, um, some of them very well known, like the balance wheel and so on. Um, as you get more experienced, those become less and less interesting. And in the end, it comes down to just asking the right question and being very alert to what the client wants. And I think for people who are over-relying on tools and techniques and there are some approaches to coaching which encourage that unfortunately so they think if they're not using some tool or technique they're not doing their job Um, it's often about fear of just being with the client and really paying attention Mm. so I think if you run if you find yourself reaching into the toolbox the question to ask is what's really going on here have I really paid attention to what the client wants? Um, the chances are maybe you haven't. Okay. So Grow and Oscar and other tools that, that help a coach to simply navigate the journey for somebody to say, well, this is where you're at, this is where you want to get to, and, and it pro- probes and prods a little bit along the way to for some information or um, feedback along the way. But, but, but ultimately trying to think what's the G again or what's the R again or I need to ask about Will at the end you're saying here that the, or if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly park that to one side once you've got a bit of experience so that you're you're sensing and you're feeling the situation so that you can shift the conversation mm-hmm. and stretch somebody in the right direction it's, it's easy to say I think it's very hard to do so mm-hmm. I, I I don't blame any coach who does need to rely on those frameworks. And I think until mm. you feel a degree of confidence and begin to find yourself embroidering on those frameworks, to just doing it naturally, I think it's fine to, mm. to, to use them. I did. Mm. And in fact, I had, I had the questions printed out and I, w- I would say to people, I find these are very, this is a very useful framework. Do you mind if I, I might, you might see me look from time to time? Oh, I see. You could you, know, you can read them if you like. I mean, nobody ever asked if they, if they could. So I think it's inevitable that you do that. There's an element of kind of copying at the beginning, right? With with coaching, I don't think you can bypass that phase. I think mm. You just have to do it. But in the end, it comes down to you sitting with that person and really, really paying attention mm. to 
how they come into the room, how they sit down, how they look, mm. tiny changes in their behaviour, mm. what they say about what they want, the language that they use, and your own lack of ego and ability just to give yourself to that, that process so that you, you are then confident that you are working with what they need. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that sense of uh, almost self-efficacy, that you've got confidence that you're going to be able to support this person in, in, a, mm-hmm. in a good way or, or a helpful way, mm-hmm. um, using your past experience through some time I think I'm going to be all right. I think this is going. To, mm. This conversation is likely to, yes. to to go okay. I think that would include if you if your sense is that something isn't working, being willing to work in the moment with that client and say, "My sense is this something isn't right. working in this okay. conversation. Are we on the? Are we going down the wrong track here? Mm. How are we getting on, you and me?" And that makes coaching a very different kind of conversation. It already is a very different kind of conversation. Mm. Because you're saying to people, you can say it, but you have to be it and do it for it to be real, I think. Um, you don't have to be defended here. Yeah. You, can be, you can be vulnerable. Mm. You can cry if you want to. I don't, don't actually say that to people, but they do often. Mm. Um, and it's it's okay to be you. It doesn't mean I'm not going to challenge you, mm. but I haven't got an agenda, which probably everybody else in your life has, one way or the other, mm. either to flatter you or to attack you or everything, everything on the spectrum in between. That's not my role. Mm. So I think that makes it a very, diff- very different kind of conversation. You mentioned being able to sort of step out of the conversation mm. to sort of sense check the rapport mm. or the how constructive it is. Mm. Um, presumably, you you might find yourself in a situation with with clients who who might have a, a deeper trauma, something that's been quite disturbing mm. that ultimately mm. is the the foundation for maybe them getting stuck or yeah. or being able to fail to make progress. How do you spot and navigate that if you if you do? Well, we're on probably quite tricky territory here because as coaches we're not we're not diagnosticians and we're not psychotherapists. Mm. But I do make it my practice in the first session always to ask people about their early lives. Mm. and there are various different ways that that you can do that and i think it's quite it's it does still astonish me how many of my clients who most of them very successful people have survived something very unpleasant in their childhoods mm. like a long illness involving hospitalization for sometimes up to a year or more um, parents who didn't know how to be parents not that they were abusive necessarily but mm. detached and not loving um, and so sometimes clients will tell you straight out I'm estranged from my parents I haven't seen them for X years or um, I came out as gay when I was 17 and my parents were fundamentalist Christians and they told me unless I repented they couldn't have anything more to do with me so I haven't seen them and these would probably count as traumatising experiences in the normal way we think about trauma but they are traumatising and so what happens is that we we, in those circumstances we construct a kind of defensive personality, persona which we present to the world which can mean we're very successful Mm. We work very hard and we, we are very ambitious and we get promoted and do very, very well. But it's not a healthy way to live. Mm. So I think when you, in the first session, when you hear a childhood story like that, it, that alerts you to the fact that that, is, that might be what you're working with. Mm. So if people come to you and say, I can't manage my time, 
having told you a story like that, I think your hypothesis might be that they're sheltering, there's, there's a, a healthy self behind this constructed facade, mm. okay, so which, is, which is waiting there to, to re-emerge. The outcome behaviours are yeah. often reflecting a defence mechanism yes, behind something. but it evokes a defence mechanism in the coach as well. So our, our own constructed selves are mm. going to be working with the client's constructed selves. This is probably far too fanciful for your, your point. No, well, I think, it, I think it's <laughs> relevant. Well, the, the connection and relevance, I think, is that there's some, there's some theories and some research that have floated around recently mm. about high-performing athletes. And it's a bit controversial, mm. some quite fruity discussion on various platforms. But it, the, the proposal and the idea is that, that super champions, so champions that turn up to games after games and win world championship medals, Olympic medals, they appear to have cited a, a, a traumatic moment from which their life is kind of pivoted and, and actually they've knuckled down, they've focused... Mm in a constant search for recognition, reward, that they're never really going to satisfy, mm. but they're doing that through pursuing mm. sporting endeavour. Um, and it's driving them. They probably haven't fully understood it, though, potentially, mm. so, as, a, as a person, let alone an athlete. Um, Sounds very plausible to me. Mm. It wouldn't apply to all people who fall into that category, but I think as an explanation for their... Single-mindedness, it sounds very likely, yes. Mm. Uh, the, the same is, is true of a lot of the high-performing executives that, are, that I work with. Right. And often they have neglected their emotional lives. They've shut themselves off from it. Mm. And then it really only needs like one thing to destabilise that, and they're in trouble. Right. Okay, actually being able to make almost support their current existence in the way that they're going forward. Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, losing a job or... Yeah, or failing to get a promotion that they think they wanted or their wife or husband leaving them um, or the serious illness of a child. It, it could be mm. anything. Mm. And the whole edifice crumbles. Mm. Uh, you, you've... Um, you talked about sort of leadership and the demands that people are under there, um, and you've you've supported the sporting systems in different ways. Um, have you made any observations about sports and what coaching, as you refer to it, executive coaching, could potentially offer in the future to this demanding world of of sport? I think it's a two way thing. I think the demanding world of sport has had a major impact on coaching and the way people think about coaching. Mm. Um, so people like Timothy Galway, for instance, mm. in the in a game of tennis has been a ma- major influence on coaching. I actually never heard of him uh, having already arrived at very similar conclusions, but mm. I was I was fascinated by what he, uh, what he described about being able to teach people to play tennis without any formal instruction. Mm. So I think it's it's very much a, a, a two-way process. In terms of what um, coaching can offer sport, I think, again, it's probably the same philosophy that Tim Galway um, uh, offers, which is you, you have to deal with a whole person and you have to assume that there are targets and outcomes that people want to get to and that people will put barriers, they will self-sabotage, they will put barriers in their own way. Mm. So the task of the, of the coach in sport is to find out what those barriers are through creating a relationship. Mm. I think that's very different from the kind of thing we started with, with the, the red-faced man running up and down the pitch blowing a whistle, yeah. who had no interest in, in his players at all. It really starts from the relationship, a relationship of trust. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think you're, you're spot on in that sense of being able to journey with somebody, um, and the or, the origins of the word coach in themselves from a coach taking somebody from um, from Vienna and to Hungary in terms of coaching their own um, exam performance, 
has echoes of journeying with somebody mm. that you mm. ultimately just on a voyage of discovery mm. as opposed to as opposed to just giving them the answers yeah, and saying right. here you go here's the cheat sheet for mm. this particular mm. thing a mm. uh, shortcut do it my way yeah I think it's more um, you know that phrase that therapists use about holding the space and containing mm. I think it starts with that there may be nudging yes and challenging and we're making it sound very serious I mean, I, I like coaching sessions where, where there's a lot of laughter yes. yeah. and I like to provoke clients as well mm. provoke in, in provoke as in um, so you say it's impossible to, to delegate well yeah it is it really is impossible isn't it because you can't trust those people mm. okay and then the client will say are you crazy? Hmm. Of course you can trust them. <laughs> and, um, so I think it's about light and shade and right. serious and fun and thoughtful and fast-paced all in the same session. So it's a delicate balance in that sense of supporting somebody, challenging them appropriately, moving through well, the gears. you're still just... supporting them when you're challenging them if you do it the right way. Right, okay, You're not nice. challenging them to gratify your own ego or to score points or to show how clever you are yeah it's all really for them it's stretching them in appropriate yeah it's manner. everything is for them it's not for you supporting and challenging mm. at the same time i like yeah. that reframe that's that's really helpful and in terms of support for yourself I and mean, people going into coaches coaching mm. potentially absorbing other people's fears or threats or uh, ambitions um What's the sort of support network would you recommend for people in that sort of role? Well, I think it starts with understanding your role and getting really well trained that mm. your role is not rescuing, reforming, improving. Right, okay. That's the client's job. I think if you understand that, that it's not your role to find the solution, that, that removes 90% of the stress. That being said, every coach will come up against really tricky situations. And to do that, I think you have to have a support network, an informal network of other coaches you can talk to right. just off the cuff, um, and a supervisor who you're in a, where you're in a formal relationship, small or less supervisor. Right. And if it's an emergency, which it could be sometimes knowing you can call that person or text them and say, I really have to speak to you, even if it's only 10 minutes. But I'm in a co-supervision relationship with another coach and we meet every six weeks. We box and cox between her place and mine, whoever's the host does lunch. <laughs> Very nice. And um, then we have an hour each where we review whatever's on our minds, which could be anything. We could take the whole hour on one case or say there seems to be a theme developing my coaching recently I've had three or four people who brought this this and this and I've dealt with it mm. like this I feel something isn't right I need to talk it through mm. and I think that 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 works pretty mm. well is there is there a sense that um, coaching for leaders is even more relevant because this is quite isolated often for leaders they're mm. on their own at the top the more senior they are, the more isolated they're likely to be. Mm. And I find that with the people who report to them, many of whom I also will, will coach, mm. I don't mean a particular leader, but um, coaching, say, people who are directors yes. reporting to a chief executive. I'm Well, I'm not surprised anymore, but, uh, but initially I was very surprised to find out how little they really knew about their bosses. And that the whole question of how you manage upwards successfully mm. is very neglected. There are millions of words about how to manage it downwards. Mm. Millions, literally millions. Very little about successful management of your boss. And because people can't do it, the senior person gets more and more and more isolated. They never get any feedback. They get flattery. Right. They get people that are sycophantic. Mm. Um, and 
yeah, they can it can really travel the wrong route before anybody says, hang on a minute, why are you doing that? Mm. So what you're spotting there is that, that whilst the leaders might be reporting and feeling isolated, mm. there's so much more that the, the layer down can yeah. can do yeah. to not only alleviate that, but also do it in a in a performance focused way well, that yeah, I can get in, more in, out of it. If you like boss. in a coaching way. Okay. There's no reason why why you shouldn't. Mm. But hierarchy gets in the way, uh, tradition gets in the way, fear gets in yeah. the way, this person is my boss, they could sack me, mm. all of that. Um, but just a simple level of, of, I was coaching somebody um, earlier this week where this topic appeared and I said, well, what do you actually know about your boss? And the answer was, more or less nothing. Oh, I think mm. he's married. Does he have children? Oh, I don't know. Mm. I thought that was just... Amazing. Mm. It's certainly a trend that we spotted in in teams that pulled together under pressure. That there was mm. empathy between them. Yeah. Or by in, in the opposite direction, teams that sort of moved apart mm. under pressure. Mm. They didn't know what their personal interests were. They didn't yeah. know if they're into motorbikes no. or wine or whatever it might be. There was just yeah. that human connection that they were interested and willing to find. Mm. Um, just lacking. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, supporting people over over this time, you've supported in people in many different ways, mm. whether it's producing um, content for the BBC, or coaching people individually or t- in teams. You've been a prolific writer during this time. Um, how do you find time to write as much as you do? <laughs> well, <laughs> writing is a compulsion. I think probably literally my earliest memory is of, of I probably only just learned to read and write, probably just learned to write, um, mm. handing my mother a raggedy collection of paper <laughs> and saying to her, this is my book. Wow. And I'd folded it in half. I can see the pages now. I'd probably cut them. <laughs> and saying, will you stitch that for me, please, because this is my book. And it was a story about a mouse. And it's gone on from there. So I was at school, I was editing the magazine, I was writing stories, I was I loved writing essays. Um, at university I was very quick. I met my husband actually because he was editing the university magazine, uh, newspaper. And I was editing the university magazine. In my postgrad course I found a magazine that needed an editor, so I became it. Right. Um so, I don't know how many books I've written, people sometimes, <laughs> and ghosted, and edited, commissioned lots. And it's, it's not work. Okay, that's, that's interesting. So mm, Something I just have to do. So, um, you're coaching the, the key skills, that's become a, a real bible for many people. Yeah, it has. And... Mm. Um, it's got such an, a lovely natural style that feels like you're you're helping them along the way. It feels like you're talking as opposed to feeling like a, a textbook. Well, I wrote that book. The, I wrote the first edition because I was maddened by the kinds of things I was reading about coaching. Right. Which were essentially, or it seemed to me, this is probably very unfair, but, oh, here's a few little questions... And here's some tools and techniques that you can try. And you wave your magic coaching wand and everything's fine. Mm. It never fails and uh, you can transform people's lives. Just ask them what their dream is. You ask a few questions. Bob's your uncle. I thought, no, it's not like that. Mm. And the reason for writing it was not that I had anything new to say really about the tools and techniques or the questions, but I think I did have something to say about what real life coaching is like. Yes, the roadblocks, the limitations, yes, the tricks. which is it very often it doesn't work. Um, okay. but sometimes you make really, I'm capable even now, of, after 26 years of experience, of making a crass beginner's mistake. Right. And of coming away from a, a coaching conversation thinking, why did I do that? Um, can, I, can I ask you why that might be the case? With your experience, 
well, what are the, I, the conditions very, around it's, that? It's a very good question. Probably I'm tired. I'm maybe okay. not concentrating. Um, more likely I've got complacent. Okay. I think, oh, I've met this before. This is like... Oh, I'm having flashbacks <laughs> now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's a classic. Yes, classic. it's making assumptions probably right. that I've, uh, it's diagnosing. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think for any, any coach, if you feel a diagnosis coming on, lie down until it passes, it's very good advice. <laughs> You're yeah. not diagnosing. There's never one explanation. Mm. Well, I, have the, I have this sort of mantra working with, with athletes or teams or systems that that you're not ready unless you ask questions. If you come in and just tell, yeah. mm. then you're not ready. Yeah. And, yeah. That's right. and if, you, if you're quite capable, then you're going to mm. be asking good questions. Mm. Um, and I remember getting a call before the, uh, before the Olympics, the Rio Olympics, from a, from a guy asking me about tapering athletes. And I, went, I, know the, I know the answer to this. Mm. And I had already started, I think I've got the answer for you. And I thought, no, be a good boy, be a good boy. And they found off going off into a completely different direction and coming up with some com- something completely novel based on just taking stock and thinking, no, be curious again. You know, invite yeah. the the yeah. The, uh, the case as opposed to just trying to solve. Well, exactly. I th- you put your finger right on it. It's about staying curious and it's about reminding yourself, I don't know. Hmm however much you think you can walk in the other person's shoes, you can't. Right. <laughs> you know, it's that thing about walking a mile on the other person's moccasins. So you walk a mile and you've got their shoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can't do it. Hmm. That's, the, that's a lovely philosophy, and I think that would give a lot of people who are in supportive managerial roles... Mm. Actually, just just as you say, diffuse some of the tension mm-hmm. and expectations on themselves mm-hmm. to sort people out in mm-hmm. some ways. That actually, if you don't know the answer, but see, I think that's so hard for people who have been paid to solve problems okay. all their careers, and who believe that their value <sighs> is that they do solve other people's problems. Mm. And that's why when those people come for training as a coach, that's the single thing they find the most difficult. Mm. They can't unhook themselves from a very well-meant intention to find the answer for other people. Right. And the training is really about catching yourself doing that every time Mm. and realising it's impossible. You You can't, you can never do it. All you will do is create resistance. Mm. So it goes back to your thing with athletes, really. How do you how do you do that with an athlete? Mm. And putting the onus on them. And, yeah, and it's the, entirely the, there. You <coughs> cannot do the learning for other people. Mm. They have to do it. Really, have to do it for themselves. And how do you balance that? You say you've got to be independent, but but also you are you. You mm. you're going to be. Uh, interpreting based on your own ex- life experience, the, the client breadth that you've, mm. you've experienced. But ultimately, you're going to be mm-hmm. interpreting from your position. Yeah, well, it would be naive to think that you're not interpreting or mm. that you're not... Um, you're, at the very least, you're managing the process side of the, of the coaching conversation. You decide what question to ask and probably how long the session is and what the framework of, of it is. Mm. But it's really, it's all about that self-awareness, isn't it? Where am I intruding with my own agenda here? How much is this about me? How much am I in the service of the client? Nice. And knowing when to stop. <laughs> right, okay. Um, I was asking you about writing. Um, it, a, a compulsion, as you've, as you've mm. called it, which um, I wish it was for me sometimes, but... How how do you find you set the conditions around writing? And um, I, have, I speak to so many people who say, oh, "I wish I could find the time, and I wish I could mm. get my head down." And well, you know, if, even if it's from a scientific point of view, writing articles, uh, scientific articles, or writing that book that they've always wanted to write, how do you set the conditions around it so that you're you're getting the best out of your time? Well, I think everybody has to find their own way of of doing that. Um, so I can only talk for myself. I can write anywhere. Um, I can write on the 38 bus and I have 
I think if you look at how professional writers do this, you'll find repeatedly they say they write something every day. Mm. And that they turn off that critical voice in their heads, knowing, especially with computer technology now, obviously, it's so easy to edit what you write, Mm. that having written it is not set in stone. Mm. But write something, whatever rubbish it is, just write. Mm. Even if it's only 250 words, write something. Mm and get into a routine. So I don't think you need, although some writers would tell you you do, the squared off paper, the specially sharpened pencils, the computer that's just got the brightness of the screen adjusted just right and nobody else within 20 metres and complete silence Mm. and uh, the right coffee and... Mm -hmm. uh, Probably. These are delay tactics by the sounds of they it. They are always <laughs> When I was an author of a training program, I used every one of those yes. because I didn't know what to put down for yeah. an athlete to do. No, the blank page is, is frightening, but I think the way to deal with it is to just assume that you will write something, and it could be rubbish, but so what? Hmm. And do you, um, and you, you blog... You write books, you do film reviews. It sounds like you're you're just following your interests as much as anything. Well, you put put your finger on another of my obsessions, which is film. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, have a weird taste in film. Go on, tell me more. Um, blockbusters, no. Um, films with subtitles from Russia, for instance, yes. Okay. Um, Art house, yes. Uh, Hollywood mm, depends. Okay. <laughs> so I like films <laughs> with emotional honesty right. in them. I don't like contorted happy endings and um, <laughs> people, women, uh, actresses purporting to be in the 18th century with 21st century makeup, for instance. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did look at your film reviews and thought I'm not quite sure I recognise many of those I, my excuse will be that I've got two teenage daughters and, and they're interested in particular films yeah. that dominate the airways in the, in, in the home but it's not the case um, but but this following your interests and, and um, your, your books about coaching your books about interviewing some of these seem like they're interests but they're also solving problems you, you're finding other people are um, have, have, have got well that's, that's, a, that's another good reason for writing actually you know that Chinese saying what we teach is what we most want to learn mm. so writing a book is a very good way of getting my own ideas clear and forcing myself to research and do some more thinking talk to more people um, it's a good way of finding out what I believe about something right okay Mm. So um, you're going, you're using the book as a vehicle for your own, own yeah. un- understanding. I would discovery. say it's one of the main ways I develop professionally to write a book. Right. It's a byproduct writing a book. It's not the reason I do it, but not overtly anyway. Mm. Um, but it is a very good way of developing yourself to write a book because mm. as a, you know people are going to read it, and you get something wrong, a reader will instantly email you. I think you might have made a little mistake here. Have you noticed there's a typo on page 16? Or hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's another good story for you, etc., <laughs> etc. Et there's um, nothing more humbling than seeing your book defaced with I agree oh, I or that. don't like that bit, no, which I love that. at least has provoked thought I love and reflection. That. I, I went for several years to teach at Fielding Graduate University in California, and people used to bring the the then edition of my book with them to the events and they used to ask me to sign their books and they'd apologise for the fact that there were highlights and stickers and scribblings how wonderful and I thought page folding at the corner just amazing yeah one of the television series I did was with Mada Jaffrey I did the first Indian cookery series in, in the UK I, can you imagine what it's like cooking for a famous cook? But I did do that. 
And uh, when she I thought came, you were going to say well, how wonderful it would be to get them to cook for yes. you all the time. No, no, no I <laughs> lunchtime. Felt, I felt she 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 deserves to have somebody cook for her. That's and, high pressure. Um, that is. It, she came to about probably six months after the book had been published, and. and I did that same thing I was describing with other people. I said, Madam, look, I'm sorry this book is in such a state. And I mean, I've still got it downstairs. It just, the pages are stuck together with spices. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think I probably cooked every single recipe in that book. And of course, she was thrilled. Yeah, how wonderful. Yeah. So, um, so a life of supporting people, whether it's through education, through providing through media, through the BBC, mm. supporting one-to-one, writing these wonderful books. What's next? What's your next challenge? What's the next thing you want to Well, to the work next on? immediate book challenge is I've been commissioned to do a book on career coaching. So I'm doing that procrastinating mm. thing myself at the moment. Not quite ready to, to stop writing. Right, okay. Um, <clears throat> There's an irony there in terms of <laughs> yes. helping someone's career. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's... it's the pressure is growing, so I will have to probably start this weekend. Um, and um, I have grandchildren, so one plan is to spend more time with with them. One, the youngest is not quite five, so um, I'm going to be doing some picking up from school probably with for him. Lovely. He was here this morning. Um, and really the plan is to more of the same actually um, go on writing go on coaching go on teaching coaching and see what happens see what happens mm. fantastic oh, well, you've been such an inspiration for so many people being able to help alleviate that stress as we've mm. talked about and, and help them with, with truly honest accounts of, of what it takes to, to support people oh, so that's very nice of you to say so thank you thank you for joining <laughs> us Jenny okay. thank you it's a pleasure So some wonderful insights there from Jenny. If you'd like to hear more from her, then you can follow her on Twitter at JennyRogers10 or check out her website, JennyRogersCoaching.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at Support underscore Champs. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on YouTube on SupportingChampions.co.uk to get these insights straight to your inbox. Do join us again for episode eight when we'll be discussing that tricky topic of high performance culture.